Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming. Action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. The James River Film Society presents a silent music revival, a collection of holiday shorts from the early 20th century with a live score by Paint On It. It'll be one night only, the 16th, at Basic City Beer Company. I'll have a link on the website for this podcast. If you've been to Movie Land this year, you may have heard that song playing on the promo for the book Magic in the Dark, One Family's Century of Adventures in the Movie Business. It chronicles the Moss family, who built one of the largest and most prestigious film chains in the New York area. The Mosses expanded their theaters and now own the only first-run cinema in the city of Richmond. Today's guest is the co-owner and chief operating officer of Bowtie Management, which owns and operates Movieland in six states. We'll not only talk about that book and some interesting historical facts, but Joel also talk about the creation of Movieland here and what their plans are for the future. He also has some fun stories to tell. Sifter Review of the Week Lady Chatterley's Lover on Netflix Emma Corrin, who's best known as Diana on The Crown, plays the lady who marries into an aristocratic British family. When her husband comes home from the war in a wheelchair, he condones her seeking pregnancy with another man. Turns out to be the lowly gamekeeper, played by Jack O'Donnell. And after lots of passionate kissing, they finally get deeply erotic and even romp naked in the rain. It's pretty obvious where the story is headed, so getting there is the challenge. Corin is effective as the conflicted woman, but it's O'Donnell whose depth most fervently captures the conflict. Their chemistry works. In keeping with the period, some gorgeous dresses, the pacing is languid, and the general attitude is subdued. As a result, the drama doesn't really gain traction until the final few minutes, and even then, it's not especially gratifying. I gave it three out of five stars. Joe Masher, anybody who's been to Movie Land in the last few months, has seen the promo for Magic in the Dark, one family's century of adventures in the movie business. Mm-hmm. What's the story on that book? Bowtie Cinemas is actually the oldest theater circuit in North America, still owned by the same family that started it back in 1900. So the book really takes you from the journey from the current generation's great, great, great and great, great grandfather right. to modern times. Both uh, B.S. Moss and William Fox were friends that worked in the textile industry in, in New York City, and they decided to get into this newfangled entertainment business. One went and did exhibition, the other went and started Fox Studios. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. There are a lot of really good anecdotal stories and factual stories as well, both in this book. It's a, it's an interesting read. And, you know, a lot of people have said that they started and couldn't put it down and finished it in one day. Well, you know, one of the interesting things that I found out in the book that I didn't realize is that Bowtie Cinemas is actually named for a district called the Bowtie. What's the story right. behind that? Interestingly enough, the building that housed our original Criterion Theater that was built in 1936 sits on Broadway and 7th Avenue between 44th and 45th Streets. Right in front of that building is where Broadway and 7th meet. So it's the bow tie of Times Square. Kind of a cool thing. We'll have to check that out. What's in that building now? Is that still the Criterion? No, the Criterion Theater so. lasted, though, from 1936 until 1999. Uh, it was outmoded by two theaters that opened around that time in Times Square. So family decided that the theater would shut down after all those years. 
and the building was converted to retail. I mean, it is one of the most photographed buildings in the world. It's one of the most street traffic uh, heavy buildings in the world. What are some of the retail that's in there now? When they shut the theater down and redid the building, it was Toys R Us, Foot Locker, and Swatch were the big three. Right, um, right. Toys R Us was huge. It had a big Ferris wheel in it. I remember that. Multi-floor. Yeah. That took up most of the, the old theater space. After, I think it was 15 or 20 years, the leases for those original tenants were up and the building was redone yet again. And now it's the home for the flagship stores for Gap and Old Navy. We have the world's largest and busiest McDonald's, I believe it is, um, <laughs> in there too. And we have a Walgreens drugstore, Starbucks, and Popeyes is coming in. And there is a uh, a new uh, gift shop that just opened with New York wow. City souvenirs. Wow, another gift shop with New York City souvenirs. <laughs> what a rarity, right? Yeah. Some of the other things about in the early days was some of the tech innovations, like the theaters were the first to play Cinerama and yes. stereo sound. Yeah, there were a lot of things that the Moss family was very innovative and did the first. Charles Moss, who is the uh, second generation, and his dad, the first generation who started the company, B.S. Moss, were very good friends with Walt Disney. And this is way before Disney Studios started. So Walt produced a cartoon and wanted to have a little premiere of it. So the first place that his little cartoon Steamboat Willie played was in one of the, it was then called B.S. Moss Theaters, the Colony Theater in Times Square played Steamboat Willie, the very first Mickey Mouse cartoon. Yeah, that's great. And actually it's ironic because they still play that at the introduction of all the Disney movies. You still see a little clip of uh, Steamboat Willie in there. Yeah. So that's very so, cool. You know, and then we have all kinds of really great memorabilia. Walt Disney, every movie he did, he did a uh, hand-drawn animation cell and signed it over to the family and framed wow. it and sent it. A very, very good relationship they had for many years. Where are all those cells now? Do you know? Some are hanging in our office. The oh, family cool. has them wow. all over. Yeah. One of my favorite things in our office, and just sitting in the conference room on the wall, um, hanging in the conference room on the wall, rather, is a telegram from Walt Disney letting Charles Moss know how excited he was that the premiere of his new movie, Sleeping Beauty, would be at the Criterion Theater in Times Square. Wow. So we had the original run of, with the premiere and the original run of Sleeping Beauty. We also had at the same Colony Theater where Steamboat Willie was first shown, we had Fantasia there. And I think that movie showed for over a year. And wow. it was one of the first theaters to ever do stereo. Oh, cool, so, cool. Yeah, the Colony Theater was actually quite innovative. They also were, believe it or not, and you can look this up in any Cinerama history, it's the first theater in New York City to have Cinerama. Maybe the first anywhere. Footnote. Cinerama was invented in the 50s. It showed extremely widescreen movies using three projectors to project on three adjacent screens. Colony was the first theater to have it, and then it moved downtown to the Lowe's Capitol. I remember it because I was a kid growing up in the 50s, and we had This is Cinerama, and then I think it was How the West Was Won was the big one. And of course, it was funny because back in those days, it's a little different now with widescreen, but you could always see the mismatch where they That's didn't right. quite line up because it was old yeah. technology. They couldn't really get it right, but you just let go because especially on the roller coaster, who cares? It was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood still once in a while. Sure, yeah. Three-step strip film process, but by and large, the whole thing is just a vintage enthusiast endeavor right now. It's really not. Cinerama doesn't exist anymore. Another really great innovative thing that the family had, we were the first theater anywhere to have a movie played in 3D. This was where you had uh, the first time for those paper glasses that had the red and the blue lens. Uh, the very first theater that ever did that was the Criterion in time. So that would have been black and white at that point? No, it was color. Was it color? It wasn't, wasn't Dial-In for Murder, was it? Don't remember the title. It was a two-strip process. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've actually saw Dial M for Murder 2 strip in Charlottesville at a theater there with two separate projectors because, you know, after a while it just became, they printed them both on the same strip and it really didn't have the same clean edges. It didn't pop like it did when it was two strip. Yep. Uh, previously in my career, I was the first manager at the Lincoln Square Theater in Manhattan, now owned by AMC, but it was Lowe's Theater at the time. And when we opened it in 1994, we didn't know it was going to be the busiest movie theater in the world. Right. It was for the first five years that I ran it. Been there, and that's got that really tall escalator, doesn't it? It's got the very tall, the longest unsupported escalator in the world, actually. Okay, there you and go. That escalator leads up to the IMAX Theater, and it was the first commercial theater to ever put in an IMAX theater, because IMAX, by and large, at that point was mostly in museums and planetariums, et cetera. So now we had, you know, commercial IMAX theater and right. we showing the best of whatever educational films that people wanted to see on this giant 100 by 80 foot screen. Um, and we had 3D, but that 3D was an electric headset. But the thing that the reason why I'm telling the story is the, uh, you were mentioning a two-strip process, the 3D film for the IMAX theater at the time, the left eye and the right eye both ran horizontally through the projector in different directions. Wow. And the sound was synced on another reel on the wall in this huge contraption. This is before digital projection and before, you know, the theater started playing commercial movies on the IMAX screen because they didn't exist back then. We had a movie created for us called Across the Sea of Time, New York 3D which uh, played in that theater for years. And that was specifically created for that theater. And it was a tourist attraction and would fill up all the time. Surprise guest drop in. Speaking of tourists, we have somebody who wants to visit. Say hello to you. Oh, hi, Kathy. How are you? Hello, Jerry. Hello, Joe. Hi, we sure miss you. I miss you too. Footnote. Kathy Conroy is recently retired as COO of the National Association of Theater Owners, also known as NATO. And she currently serves as president of Variety, a charity for children with mobility issues. Tell them why you're being missed and then uh, tell us a little bit of fun stuff about Joe. All right. Jerry invited me to join you today to tell stories about Joe Masher. And as you can imagine, Joe, He's looking that's... a little terrified. <laughs> um, that's a challenge, not because there aren't many stories about you, Joe, and um, your fun-seeking adventures, but rather it's challenging because Joe is his very, very best own storyteller. Um, Joe has great stories about meeting industry icons, including Madonna and Liza Minnelli, and one of them even coming to his own birthday party. So I won't try to compete with Joe and his excellent star-studded stories. But what I will tell is that he is an extremely talented and successful advocate for movie theaters and for the movie-going experience. Joe truly believes in people coming together to watch movies in the cinema. So I recently retired, but I had the privilege of working for several years with Joe at the National Association of Theater Owners, and he continues to be a very active and successful advocate for motion picture exhibition. And he's treasurer there now. Right? Uh, he is um, the volunteer treasurer of the national organization, which is a big job. He also is an officer at several of the regional units where um, his theaters operate. Um, right, right. Well, that's or- good because he has nothing else to do. So at least it keeps him busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's really skilled in government relations and serving as an advocate for the industry, particularly during the pandemic. Joe was working tirelessly lobbying for theaters for the right to reopen, to remove capacity, 
uh, limitations and other restrictions that the states had imposed. And he was extremely successful working with his peers in the industry. And Joe was a tremendous leader in that effort. And I know some of his theaters were some of the first to open because I was going there pretty early. Yep. He also is so supportive of the industry's charities, including Variety, the children's charity. In fact, Jerry, that's where I first met you. Yep, yep, down in Richmond. At a charity fundraiser for Variety, which um, Joe hosted at the Bowtie Cinema in in Richmond. Yeah, that was fun. I remember because it was the Fast and the Furious. I'm not sure if it was the third or fourth or fifth or who knows. But anyway, it was one of them. They had a bunch of cars in the parking lot. Brenda Williams, the manager then, had gotten a bunch of cars in the parking lot with all the crazy lights and stuff on them. Yeah, that was an exciting event. And it raised money for a good cause. Exactly. Yep. And Joe is always about that, about combining fun and bringing people together. And that was a great example of it. So I just love that in this holiday season, when we are celebrating generosity and holiday movie going. Joe is the perfect person to talk to today. Thank you so much. Joe, you got anything to say to Kathy? You know, Kathy for years was a COO of NATO and recently retired, and we sure do miss her. She guided the organization through the hell that we went through with COVID. And, you know, our funds went from here to here. And let me just stop for a second, because the people who are listening here was high and here it was low. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> Audio description. Yeah. from we, we were doing very well, very healthy organization to an okay organization, you know, because a lot of our source of income at the National Association of Theater Owners is a convention that we put on every year called CinemaCon in Las Vegas. Right. And that convention you know, attendance was down because of COVID. It was canceled because of COVID, you know, a couple of times. So we are uh, desirous to get that back to its normal pre-pandemic levels. And we're hopeful that in 2023, we'll be able to accomplish that. She really ran everything behind the scenes and never, ever once sought credit or any kind of public spotlight for anything that she did. Well, she's getting it now. So congratulations, Well, Kathy. right back at you, Joe. His <laughs> job is a volunteer job. And as as he described there are challenges so being the treasurer of the big organization is a big job and joe does it with joy and passion um kathy created with a, a team this whole plan that people i'm sure have heard of called cinema safe every theater right. in the united states basically had a cinema safe sticker on it that was kathy's leadership that created that along with a uh you know, a crew of industry people that really did a great job in, in letting people know that theaters are safe. And I'm going to say something and I'm, I'm going to get scared because I, I know what is going to happen. Mm. Um, but, you know, the movie theater industry to this date, to our knowledge, has not had one case of COVID outbreak, you know, attributed to a movie theater anywhere. We're not wow. standing on the rooftop shouting that fact out because we know somebody will say, you know, right. that after all comes, I've got COVID in the movie theater, but yeah. nobody's Report. come down with COVID. There's no been big outgrades of like 30, 40 no. people from one show, which is great. No, because you're sitting facing the same direction. You're not talking. It's safer than dining out. It's what we're really advocating for right now is to get the older generations back into the movie theaters. Um, and support the movies that are coming out for them. And Ticket to Paradise did pretty well, didn't it? It did pretty well. And I mean, that's that's for the older audience. So it's, we, yeah. I started going as soon as I could get back in the theaters. Kathy, we want to let you go. I want to thank you again for dropping in. Enjoy your retirement. You sound like me. You're retired, but you're not really retired. <laughs> right? Well, I am still enjoying working with the industry in the, its charity, the Variety of the Children's Charity. So right, right. good to see you, Joe. Good, good to, to see you, Jerry. Too. Happy holidays. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. So I want to circle back for a second, Joe, and ask you, because we were talking about the book, and what is your relationship with the Moss family? 
they hired me on as their COO, and I've been in that role for the last 20 years until just recently in August. The ownership of the company still remains with the Moss family, but we formed a new operating entity called Bowtie Management, which I am the managing partner, owner and operating partner. So that's very exciting. And that now is we run movie land for the Moss family, but it's still Bowtie. Since 2004, the Moss family, the third and fourth generations brought me on. We were opening a theater in downtown New Haven called The Criterion, named after our famed theater in Times Square. That theater was a new development in an old historic building. So family decided they were going to get back into the cinema business. They've always had a theater going at some point in time. At this point, they had one in Colorado. So we were opening downtown New Haven. It was going to be the first movie theater in downtown New Haven, I think, since 1970. At the time, there was this thing called clearances. Footnote. Clearing is a long-standing movie industry practice where theater chains could request or demand that a movie's distributors not allow certain theaters in their area to play the movie if they thought it was too competitive. We took a big, big risk going in. So National Amusements is a you know another historic family theater chain, Sumner Redstone. Uh, National Amusements was so powerful. They were the parent company and still are of Paramount Pictures, CBS Television, Simon & Schuster Publishing, I think, and all the all the TV networks, Showtime, MTV, all those all right. belong to National Amusements and their subsidiaries. So um, National had stronghold on the New Haven area. They had a theater to the north, two theaters to the west a little bit. So between the north and the west was our little five-screen Criterion Theater. And then downtown New Haven also had a three-screen art house at the time. So we were going to pride ourselves on being the new art house. I mean, you know, not to disparage anybody else's operation, but the art house that was in New Haven at the time was extremely run down, had no heat. The roof leaked on you. The seats oh, were well. horrible. It smelled. No that, heat in Connecticut. That doesn't sound like a good idea. Yeah, that, and it just didn't work. People were complaining about it all the time. So we opened this beautiful theater. And, you know, the, the problem was we couldn't get much product because National Amusements was claiming it all. So they would take in that other theater in the town of Orange, they would take that and play everything upscale that they could to try to keep than anybody else from playing movies. And there's a long history of the guy who owned the other art theater suing the studios and National Amusements and everybody else about that. So we came in and, you know, because of our longstanding relationships, we were able to open with the movie Sideways exclusively. And that did really, really well for us. Then, you know, going into the years, we played some very, very independent movies. And, uh, you know, fortunately, New Haven is not far from New York City. So the New York Times is a very prevalent newspaper there. And the Yale community reads it and reads all the film reviews. So instead of having to get on the train and go to New York City two hours away to see these movies, they could see them in New Haven. So unfortunately, that was a very limited audience. So we needed to expand it and needed to broaden our our offerings. So Universal gave us the movie Cinderella Man, and we did pretty decently with that. And they played that day and date. Footnote. Day and date usually means the release of a film on multiple platforms, usually theatrical and home video, on the same day. So we played it exclusively. Then we booked one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, and National Amusement said, then screw you, Disney, we're not going to play it. Wow. we played it and had such a huge opening weekend. They came in on week two and said, all right, we have to give this up. And then clearances were broken. So the only other exclusive big movie that we had was the first Borat movie. And because we were in downtown New Haven, Yale fraternities were buying out uh. theaters for, <laughs> just to have their you know exclusive screenings and everything. It was insane. They buy out all the seats at full price just to have their own right, auditorium. Right. You know, back then it was film, so we couldn't play it on every single screen. At the time, you had a thing called Interlock where the film came out of one projector and you'd feed it through the series of loops and rollers on the walls um, and put it through the second projector. 
projector. And there was a loop accumulator in the middle to make sure that the film, if one projector was running too slow or too fast, it would make sure the film wouldn't be all over the floor kind of thing. And we were, you know, really successful in playing Borat. Also, around that same time, the other art house closed. So we were able to play every big art movie and really put ourselves on the map with, you know, things like Brokeback Mountain. You know, we, and we mix it up with upscale commercial and art films. And that formula is still working today. In fact, we've expanded the theater twice. It's now nine screens. So let's move south. Why did you decide, Richmond? I mean, obviously, the least south you've been was Maryland. So what made you want to cross the Mason-Dixon line? So interesting enough, it's a, it's a great story. The Moss family, uh, the father and son, Charlie and Ben, at the time, were very into motorcycles. And they would take motorcycle trips each year. Father and son motorcycle, you know, they'd take off in the summer. And right. uh, they looked at cities that they thought were interesting. They, With the New Haven model, they looked for cities that had very strong educational, medical, and arts communities. And they tried to find buildings that they could rehab that would, you know, they could put into a, either a mixed use or a theater use or, you know, hopefully mixed use with a theater concept in it. Our original theater in Richmond uh, was going to be in the Barry Burke building. Footnote. The Barry Burke Company was a retail clothing store built in 1928. It was located downtown at Fifth and Grace. I think we were under contract to take over that building. We had our architect draw it out. And the, the way it worked, because the building dimensions weren't huge, it wasn't really a very wide building. Right. And the column spacing in there was not great. I think he could only come up with four screens or something. So that wouldn't work. So at that same time, they were still looking with brokers and they found the Richmond Steel Plant, formerly American Locomotive Company. And the rest is history. I mean, that's we developed did that theater there. Well, now, speaking of downtown, I know for a while there was a lot on Main Street further down that y'all had bought. Was that just something of a potential that just never happened? Yeah, the family still owns that. I mean, they, they thought that it was an interesting piece of property, and who knows in the future they might develop it into something. But right now it's right. You know, used for parking. I know that some of your theaters have started luxury entertainment centers mm -hmm. with more fancy seating and recliners and all that kind of stuff. Is anything like that planned for the Richmond Theater? Actually, you know, I'm proud to say yes. It was planned before the uh, the pandemic hit. Um, unfortunately, the business is just not there yet to move forward with anything. And, you know, we're hopeful that next year we can. But we would very much uh, like to reimagine the Richmond Theater. Um, it's still very viable and very, very busy. It's the number one theater in the market. But we want to maintain that position as well. So, yes, we, we're looking at doing, you know, more dining, more food, and certainly reseating the theater, building some large format screens, one or two of them on it, you know, proprietary large format. Like IMAX or something. Like IMAX without the IMAX license. Right, so we right, call right. ours BTX. So I guess the drive-in is never going to happen. <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite thing. That was my whole idea. We had two drive-ins going on in there. The first one was on the piece of property on Lee Street, just to the south of the theater. And that unfortunately became too expensive. The stormwater retention rules and right. the grading of the property alone was just cost prohibitive based on the projections that we thought we could do. And it could only hold 200 right. cars. So it wasn't that big. So that unfortunately, cost wise, was prohibitive. But we did, you know, start the process downtown with getting permission and all that. And it was a very exciting thing at the time. But unfortunately, like I said, the cost didn't, uh, right. didn't justify the revenue. Yeah. Speaking of that now, poor little old Criterion in Richmond, not the big ones, has been sitting there since the pandemic still closed. Do you think that's ever going to be able to get back open? Uh, we're hopeful. I mean, right now, there just isn't enough product. That's the main thing that's wrong with movie going right now. There isn't enough product. Uh, everybody's always concerned about streaming and you know all that, but the, the problem is there's not enough product. I think what's happening, and you tell me maybe I'm wrong on this, but it seems to me there's a lot of stuff that's kind of mediocre that would have not been released during COVID, but because they don't have product, they're just like, here, take this crappy movie and 
put it in the theaters. Yeah, and it's not that they're crappy movies, all of them. The, the problem is that the small distributors don't have the money to market them. Right, so, right. You, know, you can look at the movie theater any given week, and you can see a bunch of titles that you just don't, you've never heard of them. Triangle like, of Sadness? What is that? It's a great movie. Oh, if it is. Know, I loved it. it. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, it's so good. The problem with product right now is it's twofold. First of all, Fox Studios is no longer. They were gobbled up by one of their you know competitors, uh, the Big D. That took about 10 to 15 movies off of our calendar every year. You know, Fox was great at producing those movies that did like the 50 to 75 million dollar right. gross range. And that, you know, was very, very good. You know, there just aren't enough what we call tent poles or big studio movies to fill seats. You know, we, we've had some great, great successes with Spider-Man and Batman and Minions and the and the big one, Top Gun Maverick, of course. And and then Wakanda Forever, I'm sure. Wakanda Forever right now, sure. And, you know, the problem is they're the only movies that are out at the time. And you hear how yeah. great they do, but they're one movie. And with the studios taking a higher and higher percentage of that film's ticket price, you know, you really don't have much left over at the theater. At this point, hopeful that whatever you have left from the box office can cover your labor at best. So you really rely on concession sales to cover everything else, you know, utilities and maintenance and repairs and everything else under there. So and, buy that popcorn, people. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and unfortunately, it's it's expensive and you can't keep raising concession prices. I mean, we know right. that there's market resistance and we know popcorn's expensive, but there's a reason why. We just can't keep the doors open without it. And, you know, we realize we can't raise ticket prices anymore. So, you know, we're looking at different things like putting in some video games. You know, we've certainly over the years. Oh, my Lord. Bar in Richmond. <laughs> expanded the bar to include, you know, full liquor and bought some better furniture for it and everything. So hopefully people can sit and enjoy a cocktail, you know, before or after the movie or certainly buy them and take them in during the movie. When we do the luxury concept, we'll have a food app so people can order right from their seat if they'd like, and we'll bring it into you. So mid-movie, if you want another drink or you want another box of candy or whatever, you can fire up your app, order it, and we'll deliver it to you uh, in short order. I've been chatting with Joe Masher, the chief operating officer of Bowtie Cinemas. As a matter of fact, the discussion was so interesting we couldn't fit it all in one show. So, next week, Joe will return to continue our discussion, including streaming's effect on the movie business, his other passions, collecting vinyl records, he has thousands of them, and some of the stars he's met. I'll have links to the things we've discussed on the page for this show. Coming soon. In theaters. Avatar, The Way of Water, the long-awaited part two of Avatar. Empire of Light, from director Sam Mendes, comes this drama about the magic of cinema, starring Olivia Colman. The Almond and the Seahorse, an archaeologist and an architect fight to reimagine the future after a traumatic brain injury, starring Rebel Wilson. TV and streaming. Bardo on Netflix. After several weeks in theaters, the latest from Alejandro Inaratu is about a journalist on an introspective journey for two hours and 40 minutes. 1923 on Paramount Plus. This prequel to the ever-popular Yellowstone series has Richard Sheridan casting Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren as two early-generation Duttons. You can subscribe to this podcast. Just go to tvjerry.com, click on the podcast tab, and there's the link. Next week, Joe Masher will return for part two. I'm Jerry Williams. Thanks for listening. For more Sister, including literally thousands, thousands of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com. That's a wrap.